The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. The Catch and Shoot podcast is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. Catch and Shoot goes well with both red and white and is perfect with a workout of your choice. Our co-hosts are on both coasts and they have all of NBA Nation covered. Adam Stanko in the Bay Area and Noah Kozlov in the Big Apple. The Catch and Shoot podcast recording the morning after one of the craziest NBA games I've ever seen. Been in the building for a lot of them. Wasn't in the building for that one. But that was wild last night. I'm Noah Kozlov out here on the East Coast. Adam Stanko, say hello out on the West Coast. Yep, saying hello. All right, saying so hello. now you're going to get game six in your backyard. But first, I want to start with the Raptors fans before we get into explain this to me and Avery Johnson. And it's right. not the what you're going to expect about the Raptors fans, about how they cheered for a moment after KD got hurt, before the chance of KD, whatever. It happens. I'm more talking about the 48 hours of coverage of Raptors fans waiting outside in line for Jurassic Park. You would have thought that the way that this was being covered, you would have thought that they were lining up for voluntary military service or were on some sort of hunger strike. They're, they're sports fans. All right. I mean, pe- people wait out in line overnight to see Saturday Night Live every single week. People wait out for concert tickets all the time. People tent in Kayville in, at Duke. It, it, this happens. It was, it was as if the, these fans were being praised <laughs> like they were volunteering, volu- volunteering for the military. Noah, I've been watching, uh, well, just finished actually, that HBO series Chernobyl. And I haven't seen it yet. Just terrific. Just terrific. And uh, I, this is spoiler, but not really a spoiler. It's a, I, you know what happens. I would I would hope anyway. Yeah, usually um, usually you don't need the spoiler for the <laughs> for the historical events. OK, but there is a, but there is a scene in 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 Chernobyl. I mean, the whole the whole um, uh, drama is just so dark and it but it's brilliantly done. Really excellent. And uh, but there is a scene in there in which it's incredible these miners were brought in to to help with like the cleanup project and everything to to just try to it's all these heroic stories about how they try to just contain the damage as bad as it was um for this you know nuclear met- nuclear met- meltdown they still tried to contain it and these miners go in and basically there are these tough guys and they said all right we're going to do what we have to do and they literally ended up going in and mining because their clothes would be radioactive. They do it in the nude. And so it's this remarkable story of just this heroic act of these guys going in, knowing what they're risking, they're putting it all on the line and they, and they do, they all end up, you know, in, in awful situations, health wise. And a lot of them die. My thing is, wait, hold on. Did they get to watch game six of the finals outside the arena? 
Well, that was what I was getting at, was the idea that the guys that were treated as they were waiting in the rain to get into Jurassic Park to cheer for their team, as they're having a good time, and most of them have probably been drinking all day anyway, like, they're right, right. being the treated big, their, their the same risk. way. Their biggest being risk treated. is the sniffles. Like, they're all high, <laughs> they're all stoned, and they're waiting out in line to watch a game. And all right, maybe the next day they've uh, you know need to buy an extra box of tissues because they've got a runny nose. <laughs> I mean, come on, oh, incredible! Come incredible. on, hey, hey, come on. Anyway, we're gonna have Avery Johnson in a moment. The 1999 champ with the San Antonio Spurs, longtime head coach in the league, Mavericks and Nets, and former head coach at Alabama. Get a chance. The Pure Hoops Media Podcast Network has the Mike Wise Show. A slightly awkward interview with Mark Lazary came out this week in uh, in his office when Mike asked him, how much money did you donate to Barack Obama's campaign? So you can listen for that. Monica McNutt, Buckets, Boards, and Blocks. She had on Nate Burleson, who's got a basketball background and, of course, an NFL background. You can see him on the NFL on CBS and the Pure Hoops show with Eric Newman and NBA champion BJ Armstrong that comes out on Friday. But first... Guys, explain this to me. All right, Adam, I don't think we need really to do too much here. It's just going to be one, explain this to me. Explain this to me. How does Kevin Durant's injury impact the rest of the finals and next season? It's everything, right? Let's start with the finals first, because next season, I think, just gets pretty wild but but as far as the rest of the finals it was interesting because it was sort of this thing that was hanging over this matchup between the raptors and warriors was whether kd would play or not because it seemed like the raptors have been the better team and pose all these different matchup problems for the warriors as long as kd's not on the floor then we see him on the floor he plays what 12 minutes makes a few contested threes and we're going wow KD's back and then the first time that he tries to attack his defender he goes down with this Achilles injury I think for the rest of the finals obviously it's another dark cloud I think the Raptors end up winning this thing I don't know if it'll be an oracle because that might be an inspirational Warriors performance but I think in the end the Raptors have been the better team without KD on the floor and I think they'll continue to be especially because Kawhi Leonard really now can be more of a roaming guy and the matchup problems that the Raptors present are worse for the Warriors, and they haven't really gotten much offense out of anyone that's not named Clay or Steph Curry. Your thoughts? And, yeah, and I, and I do understand that anything could happen if you get to a Game 7. I, I don't think we're going to get to the Game 7. I think the Raptors win this in 6, and it would be pretty remarkable that the Golden State Warriors, that their run ends here with – losing all three games in the finals at home. Wow. I, I, I haven't checked in with Elias this morning, but I can't imagine a two-time defending champion the following year losing all three games on their home floor. Look, the, the Raptors should have won that game last night. Yes. They should, have, they should have been able to put their foot on the pedal and put their foot around the neck of the Warriors and suck the life out of them once KD went down, but they couldn't. But... They were still up six with three minutes left, and Nick Nurse used the user to lose the timeout, which to me is inexplicable. And I was watching last night. I was watching postgame, and it wasn't until – so Mark Broussard from NBA Communications is running the press conference. Right. It wasn't until he said, 
three more questions that that question was asked about the timeout. I oh, assumed wow. I assumed it was going to be the first question, and I don't I don't really get on the media a whole lot, and and many others do, and I'm not I'm not really about it, but I just assumed it would be the first question asked. But it wasn't. It wasn't the second. It wasn't the third. It wasn't the fourth. It wasn't. Oh, my goodness. And then it was finally asked. And he said, well, you know, I want to get our guys some rest. But that was when Kawhi, they're on a 9-2 run, 10-2 run. Kawhi had scored 10 straight. And they're up six. And then you gave the Warriors the rest. And it all fell apart. So I think they go back to Golden State now. And without KD and without Looney also, the, the Warriors are back to where they were before without those other guys out there to spread the court. You saw the difference just with KD out there yes. in, the, in the limited minutes. Just you have another shooting option out there, and it's not just some regular guy either. And he was awesome. So yeah. when, you, when you, can't, yeah. you can't spread the floor, it just makes him that much easier to defend. And, and, I, th- and I think the Raptors get him. And I think you're going to see a much more aggressive Kawhi too. And here's the thing. You talk about that timeout. It's interesting because – the momentum shift in NBA games is always so incredible. It's, it reaches the point where sometimes we see teams call a timeout when you, you know it's coming, right? No, we, we watch enough basketball. We know the game well enough that you're just seeing it and you're going, okay, timeout here. And we've seen exceptions through the years where obviously Phil Jackson was famous for saying, no, I'm going to let you guys play through it. I want you to deal with this adversity. This almost came from the opposite side of that. And for all the great moves Nick Nurse has made, he he it, this was a strategy for him he said you, you pointed it out i'm going to lose those i'm going to lose those timeouts i might as well use them now get my guys some rest so we have a strong stretch run the interesting part as you point out is you had momentum and you almost have to trust your guys in that spot that that's going to continue yeah, and, and, why would, and why wouldn't you why wouldn't you and you know that we know that timeouts can stop momentum that's what they are used for most often yeah, in the, the other NBA. way. <laughs> yes, the other exactly. Way. By the exactly. opposition. So, I, I, you know, I'm glad that he answered the question that way and, and actually took us inside his mind. I Obviously, it was a mistake, and it's going to cost him. We'll see if it haunts him, but it was a, obviously a mistake. And so now, no, it shifts to what is this Durant injury? And I'll let you answer this thing first. Like, what does it mean for the rest of the league? What does it mean just in terms of where Durant's going to be playing next season? Yeah, so I think he's so he's got a few options. He can he can opt into the thirty one and a half. Mm-hmm. That's not a terrible option. So if you're you're rehabbing, you don't have to worry about finding a new city, a new situation, get adjusted anywhere, talk to different media. You could just opt in thirty one and a half, stay in Golden State for the year, and then you maybe end up coming back at the you know the back end of the season and and seeing what happens, and maybe they're in position to win another title. So I don't think it should be just thought that he is absolutely he's finished for the season next year. I think that, I mean if he you know starts now, then you know if it's eight ten months he could, he could be back. So anyway, there's that. He could sign a max somewhere else and get about six and a half million more. The Knicks I would imagine would offer him the max. The Nets would offer him the max. There are going to be other teams that are still going to offer Kevin Durant the max, but it changes. And what I think is most significant is it changes the timetable for those teams that are signing him when they want to compete. So if you sign, mm-hmm. say, uh, let's just take the Knicks, for example. The Knicks sign Kyrie 
and Kevin Durant. Well, uh, the, the Knicks aren't competing next year for a title with that. But then yes. maybe that's also not the worst thing in the world. Then you end up with a higher draft pick that then you add with Kevin Durant the following year. So I think Kevin Durant is still going to get the max somewhere. I don't I I don't think and and if I was the Warriors, I wouldn't I wouldn't offer him the max. Oh no. No, I don't I don't think that's going to happen. And I think other teams are going to start to rethink how they strategize this and whether they are going to like everyone would have offered him the max and found a way to get Kevin Durant on the roster. Everyone would have want, as I've phrased it, everyone would have wanted him, uh, and everyone with cap space was was going to offer him. Now I don't know that all those offers will be there, as you as you point out. I think some and, of them will be though. Oh, I and I I think you're right. I I do think it's going to be an interesting sell because I think still some of these executives are going to have to sell to their owners. Um, you know, hey, we're going to pay this guy $38 million next year and he's not going to play. Or you wonder if there will be pressure to see him on the court at some point next season. I mean, we usually expect Achilles injuries to be at least eight months. And then even at that point, year one, you're probably not looking like, like yourself. But I, I, I agree with you. I think there are going to be teams that end up offering him uh, and have that long-term play. You bring up the most interesting point of all, which is, how does that then impact the next the next guy that comes in? I like so if it's the Knicks, let's say, and you're using that scenario, and you say that Kevin Durant is going to sign for the Max, does Kyrie Irving then say, okay, I'm going to go to the Knicks and play with Kevin Durant, and and okay, he might not be playing next season, but I got to be hopeful that he's at ninety percent, you know, year two of this deal. That's that's the interesting part to me is how much is it going to impact that second free agent from coming? I think. Well, then how, well, then how about the how about then the free agents the following year? So say he opts in, then you've get the you get the 2020 free agents from all those guys who signed in 2016. So mm-hmm. like Demar Derozan's a free agent, Al Horford be a free. It would depending on what they decide to do this year with their deals. But Gordon Hayward, Kyle Lowry. So you, you're going to have a lot of guys who, when that money comes off the books, and then everybody's got more money. So the teams that freed up the money this year think that they're in a unique situation, but then when the number one guy is taken off the board, what do you do with that money? That's a good point. That's a really good point. And I, I don't know how this is going to shake out. So if, let me ask you this. If, if gun to your head right now, oh, where do you think KD ends up next season? I, I, I have no idea, dude. <laughs> I, I honestly, I have, I have no idea. But if, the, the the gun to the head. Hope he doesn't pull the trigger. I would say he he just opts into Golden State. And and that's the interesting one to me because here's the other part. If he opts in with the Warriors, now what does next season look like from his medicals perspective? So in other words, is he is he going back to the? We don't know. And this is all, of course under the belief that we we don't know what happened, who asked him to be on the court, how much of a say he had. We know he wanted to play. Um, you know, how much was his agent pushing for this? How much was Bob Myers floating stuff in the media saying, hey, we're, we're upset that Durant's not pushing this? Mm-hmm. We, we don't know the answers to those questions. And I think more and more information is going to come out, obviously, over the next few weeks and months. But I think if Durant were to opt in, that creates a really interesting situation. Is he going to stick around and do all of his rehab work 
within the Warriors facility. And and maybe there's no reason why he shouldn't. I'm just I think that leads to a bunch of other questions in itself. So this whole thing, I think, has turned into, you know, I hesitate to use the word fascinating, but it is a fascinating story to see, you know, what ends up happening here, because the truth is no one has any idea. We might have thought we had an idea where Durant was going to be next season as of 48 hours ago. We don't as of right now. Right. I mean, the, the ripple effects will be felt across the league. And if if it does come out or not even come out, I mean, if KD thinks that he was pushed and he didn't want to, and, he, and he didn't want to play. But I got to imagine that he wanted to play. Um, yeah. And if Bob Myers is saying that he was cleared, if he was that he was cleared medically, and that he and that the report from the Warriors was that he couldn't get more hurt, well, what 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 does that mean? That the calf couldn't get hurt more, or that he wasn't at any more risk of injury than he would have been just in the middle of the season? There are still there are still a lot of questions to be asked. Kendrick Perkins was on with Brian Windhorst and Zach Lowe after the game, and and Perk, you know, he says he's you know one of Katie's good friends, and I believe it, but he's he just talks nonsense. And I like hearing his voice actually. Yeah. He talks nonstop to everybody. And he says that he said afterwards that that Kevin Durant wasn't close to 60% last night. Wow. All right. Well, you know what? If those 12 minutes wasn't close to 60%, then Kevin Durant might, might be the best player of all time. Pretty impressive 12 minutes. Yeah, it was. But, but no, again, I think the one thing is though, we also saw, we also saw him taking these, the the threes and he looked really good and he looked ready to go the interesting part was to me was it literally was the first time we saw him operate on a drive and i thought that was what was fascinating about this thing was that it happened his very first time that he decided to drive and we know from different injuries that overcompensating can lead to other stuff and so here's the other part about it though what if this was a freak thing like, like, what if it's just maybe he's in his own head, what have you? Achilles tears happen without other injuries being related to them. So there's there's that factor, too. Of course, that seems like a crazy long shot. But I, I, I'm just of the belief. The one thing I do want to say is I, I was hearing from a friend of mine um, who was saying, texting me last night saying that he did not believe that the Bob Myers press conference was authentic at all. And I just want to say, like, I don't know the last time that I saw a, an executive show up at a press conference to make a statement in a difficult yeah, situation. And I give him a lot of credit for facing the media because he certainly didn't have to do that. He's not required to. And he came out and he spoke. And he also, by the way, he took the blame for it. In his statement, he said, if you want to blame anyone, you can blame me. I'm responsible. I'm the president of basketball operations here. And so I, I really, th- I really believed in what he had to say. And I will say like, I, I, I feel bad for everybody involved. Like, it's just a lousy situation. And even even the Raptors fans, like, I still also wonder, Noah, like, you brought it up at the very top of the show. I wonder, too, like, that ended up being a turnover. I don't know how many of those, like, cheers or boos or what have you, like, at the very beginning of it were just because they ended up getting a turnover. Like, I think sometimes we we go crazy on all these uh, harsh takes. No, and, uh, no. No, no, no one, no one ever jumps to conclusions. Nobody. <laughs> uh, you're, that's, that's, that's nonsense. That's nonsense. Let's get to Avery Johnson. We're joined now by Avery Johnson, his number six, retired by the San Antonio Spurs, a member of that 1999 championship team, spent 16 years in the league, six teams, was a head coach for six-plus seasons with the Mavericks and the Nets, was a Western Conference champion in 06 with Dallas, the 06 Coach of the Year, and also coached most recently at the University of Alabama for four years 
Coach, let's start with what's topical. What situation were you in as a player or a coach when a star was hurt like KD was going into game five and like KD played despite not being close to 100%? Wow. Uh, I've rarely been in a situation like that um, as a player or a coach. Uh, back in, a, I think it was 2001, uh, when I was with the um, Mavericks, um, Dirk Nowitzki got injured um, in the uh, Western Conference, uh, I think it was the semifinals, against the Spurs. And, and, you know, there was some talk about whether he could play or or not play, and he ended up not playing. And the decision was made to protect him not only, um, you know, for the rest of that series, but for his future. And we thought that was the right move, and it ended up being the right move because we thought he could further injure himself. And um, so that's what I thought about with the Kevin Durant injury because I always thought it was an Achilles strain more than a calf strain. Uh, during the initial report, and if if it was an Achilles strain, then obviously he could injure it a lot worse, which he did. Uh, but rarely have I been in that situation. Uh, but give Kevin Durant a lot of credit for wanting to come back and save his team after being down three-one, and I think he did save them in a lot of ways because it definitely re-energized them to finish that game, uh, to finish game five strong and send it back to Golden State. Was everybody on the same page? How did the decision get made? Yeah, well, you got you have so many people involved. Uh, one, uh, it's Kevin Durant at the end of the day. Uh, uh, he has to make the final, final, final decision. You're going to have doctors involved. You're going to have trainers involved, the coaching staff involved, ownership involved, the general manager or president uh, in, involved. Uh, his mom was probably involved, but at the end of the day, you know, even if they give him the green light, uh, he still has to make the final decision. Okay, I have the green light. I'm going to go out there and give it a try. Uh, we've seen in the past guys like Kawhi Leonard that had the green light from the Spurs, but he made the final decision not to play. He didn't feel like his body was ready to compete at a high level. So I think ultimately a lot of times people and fans think that it's the coaches or the training staff final decision. No, it's, it's ultimately up to the player uh, in concert with all of those different uh, people that actually have a voice in the decision. When, when you look at this entire decision and then, and then also what looms now for Kevin Durant as he faces free agency, what, What's your big takeaway from, from what you saw last night? Well, my big takeaway is how the pendulum has swung and how Kevin Durant was so unappreciated and so misunderstood prior to uh, this injury. And now all of a sudden, you know, he's a hero. You know, he's understood much better and people are empathizing with him and feel bad for him. Uh, and now they realize that, you know, how much he loves to play the game of basketball when th that should have never uh, uh, been questioned 
prior to him injuring himself or even coming, you know, participating in Game Five. So it's just amazing the swing of emotions with fans and and you know some of the talking heads on TV in terms of how much more respect they have for Kevin Durant when that respect should have been at an all-time high even before he decided to play in Game 5. And even if he didn't decide to play in Game 5, he still should have been celebrated uh, and and respected uh, for being a two-time Finals MVP. All right, so I want to stick with Game 5. I just want to move off this Finals. Uh, so so how, did, how did Dwayne Wade take 25 free throws in Game 5 of 06? <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> it definitely wasn't our defense uh, because <laughs> we we took pride in not being the team that fouled a lot. You know, we 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 took pride in getting in the bonus first and staying out of the bonus uh, on defense and uh, you know having really good position. But uh, Dwayne's a great player. What a great career he. He had, um, you know, with the Heat, and it was unfortunately where he had to go and play for, you know, two other teams or whatever before he came back to retire with the Heat. But he's an incredible player. You can't take nothing away from him. But uh, I was just really heartbroken for for Dirk and, and, and our team and staff and Mark, our owner, who did an incredible job. And um, But I think that experience in 2006 – based on my conversation with Dirk and what he said and following up, uh, following interviews, uh, that that experience really helped him and, and the team in 2011 when they went back again. If it wasn't no 2006, who knows if they would have won it in 2011 because nothing beats experience and, and having that, that hole in your soul uh, when you know, you know, we just can't lose – the finals for the second time in five years because you never know if you'll get a, another chance again. All right, you said you can't take anything away from them, but you'd like to take away a few of those free throws. I want to I stay on this. So 97 <laughs> free throws in that series. Dirk took 55 that led the team, but the 25 in game five. At what point after when you end up losing the finals, at what point did you go back and watch game five and how many free throws should Dwayne Wade actually have taken? Yeah, when I went back and looked at it, uh, probably a couple of weeks after, you know, there's always going to be, you know, some questionable calls. And I, that's why I like where the NBA is now with the two-minute report after games and, you know, having guys like Steve Javi come on uh, during the games and, and, and the, the the video replays. It, it just helps the transparency. And um, I wish we'd have had a lot of those things in place, but – at the end of the day, you can't take anything away from uh, his performance. Um, sure, we wish instead of 25 free throws, we wish it could have been 12. Because obviously, if it was 12, we win this. We win that game and probably win the series. But um, you know, let's let's give them credit. Our coaching staff worked awfully hard. Their staff, you know, obviously Pat Riley took over and, and did a nice job. But um, you know, at the end of the day, uh, I'm awfully proud of, of our effort that year and, and specifically how we navigated ourselves through the Western Conference to even get to the finals and, and have a chance. And um, I, I like, you know, where a lot of our guys are now. You know, Adrian Griffin is an assistant coach with Toronto Stackhouse is a head coach with Vanderbilt. Dirk just retired. Uh, a lot of great things are happening with guys on that team. 
So Avery, we can come back into your NBA years in a moment, but I'm really curious. Um, we're approaching the NBA draft now. In 1988, um, you went on drafted after leading all of the, um, Division One in, in assists a game with with over 13 a game. It was actually an NCAA record at the time. Um, and you're undrafted, and you spend your first pro season playing for the Palm Beach Stingrays. I'm curious, during that year, what did you envision that your pro basketball career was going to look like? Well, there was a high level of disappointment. One of the great things about that whole process started for me uh, at the Portsmouth Invitational Tournament, the PIT. And, um, you know, I went there and uh, obviously wanted to go and improve myself so I can have an opportunity to get drafted. And I walk in the room and there's this big guy, you know, in shorts, you know, no shirt on. And he was uh, 6'6", 280 pounds, Anthony Mason. And, and we both talked all night long about our dream of playing in the NBA. And, uh, he, I, you know, he's resting in peace now. And, and um, it was just an amazing experience that Anthony Mason was the first guy I met at the PIT. And both of us, you know, went on to play in the NBA for, for, for a long time. And, and I had great memories about that, but we, we both had to make it the hard way. You know, I think he was drafting in the second round and, and I wasn't drafted at all. And, and uh, just had to go in through the back door and ended up going play for the Palm Beach Stingrays that summer. And, and then I went and tried out for the Seattle Supersonics and, uh, you know, their third round pick uh, was on the team and, and uh, you know, fortunately beat out everybody. And I was the last guy to make the team for Bernie Bickerstaff. And, and, it, and, and it turned out to be, you know, historic and, you know, leading into a 16-year NBA career. But I'm still waiting to hear my name called in 1988. And it still hasn't happened, especially after leading – still having a record that stands today, averaging 13.3 assists in one season. Yeah, so tell me about that. Where where were you on, on draft night? Well, I was in Florida. I was in Florida watching uh, from my little small one-bedroom apartment with my college teammate, Kevin Florent, and, um, you know, just watching the draft and was just heartbroken. There was no way in the world I didn't think I was going to get drafted. They had three rounds back then, so – I thought I was going to get drafted, but um, I didn't. But that just, again, motivated me. And I think it also prepared me when I would get cut a couple of different times in my NBA career or traded to just know how to respond to uh, adversity. Who had you worked out for? Well, I worked out for uh, Seattle. Um, I was supposed to go and work out for Golden State in Atlanta. But I just worked out for Seattle, and uh, I remember playing in the summer league that year uh, because that's when a lot of the second and third year players still played summer league. And I played summer league with, you know, Derek McKee and Nate McMillan. Huh. Uh, we p- played at Loyola Marymount, um, and you know, it was just, it was a great opportunity to play against those guys, and we actually scrimmaged against the Portland Trailblazers. They're kind of A-team with Clyde Drexler and Terry Porter and, you know, Duckworth and Jerome Kersey, the late, great Jerome Kersey, who ended up being my teammate with um, 
with the Spurs. So it was it was an amazing experience for a young guy uh, trying to make it an NBA roster. Did you did you hang in in those games? Did you hold your own? I did. Yeah, I hung in there pretty good, and I think that's what caught the attention of Seattle and you know the staff, and um, you know gave me an opportunity to get invited back for veterans camp. So then, so then on draft night, as you're sitting there. Did you did you have an agent at the time? Yeah, I did have an agent. Did, did he, did uh, but he, you know, he you, didn't. I mean, I know I know you're not talking over a cell phone or texting each other in 1988. But did he tell you I expect you to go here? Did when you met with Seattle, did they say if you're here at this time, we'll take you? Right. So um, the thought was I was going to go in the mid to late second round, and um, you know we had guys like Rod Strickland in that draft. Um, who I think riding it up going 10, 11, or 12, I'm not sure. But, uh, you know, we had some, we had some really good point guards. Uh, David Rivers, who was with Notre Dame, I think he was the last pick in the first round. And uh, But the thought with me was I would go in the mid-second mid, uh, round or late second round, and it, it didn't end up happening. When you then make uh... – when you make it to the the Sonics and and you're playing for them, um, at what point? What was the turning point where your confidence um, was such that you were able to turn yourself into into a starter, really, and a, and a guy that believed that that he should be there? Well, it didn't happen with the Sonics because I was basically the last man on the team. Uh, um, I think they I think they called me Little Thirty because they only put me in the game when they were up thirty or down from 30. But um, <laughs> my first two years with the Sonics, it was like an internship. You know, I was, I was like a red shirt guy that was, that was active at the time. And, you know, and a lot of games I didn't play and some games I did. Like, like I said, if it was, the game was a blowout. I'll never forget. We were beating uh, Sacramento in the second or third game of the season. And Bernie Bickerstaff, our coach put me in with about, 50 seconds to go in the game. And I'll never forget my first NBA point was a right-handed jump hook in the lane over one of my future teammates, Vinny Del Negro, who played at Sacramento. <laughs> I'll never forget that. But that was the highlight of my, my first two years. And um, played there before I ended up, you know, bouncing and getting traded to Denver and then to the Spurs the first time. But I would say the second time with the Spurs uh, was a time that I think my career started to really gain some gain some momentum in the early 90s uh, when John Lucas was the coach. And then when I got traded or signed with the Golden State Warriors in 93, when Tim Hardaway blew out his ACL and played that year with Chris Mullen and Latrell Sprewell and Greg Popovich was – Don Nelson's head assistant. Um, that's when my career during those two years really started to take off, and that's when I started to really figure it out. Now, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna get to that in a moment, but I, I got to hear a Xavier McDaniel story from from your first year in Seattle. X Man, wow, X Man was uh, you know a tough guy, hard nosed guy. I remember he and Charles Oakley got in a fight uh, in Madison Square Garden. And it was like, you know, 
two Goliaths going at it. And to have a front row seat to watch that was was pretty impressive. But I would say guys like uh, Xavier McDaniel, uh, he was just a very, you know, giving guy, took care of uh, the rookies. Um, you know, he was a guy that looked after a lot of the young guys on the team, but just was a guy that never really lift weights, but was one of the strongest guys I've ever seen in my life. Well, well aside, aside from the fight with Oakley, what's the, the physically toughest thing you ever saw X-Man do? Xavier McDaniel? Uh-huh. Wow. I, I mean, I've just I saw him lift up guys like Michael Cage in practice and basically body slam him. I mean, this guy was strong, man. And you know Michael Cage with his physique at that time and one of the best rebounders in the league. But, you know, we had a pretty physically imposing front line with, with Xavier and Cage and guys like Elton Lister. And, you know, then little Sean, Sean Kemp came in out of high school with a pretty, pretty unique team back then. You had you had Jerry Tarkanian as a head coach for you know about yeah. 20, 20 games in San Antonio, right? So so we asked we had we had Sean Elliott on last week and uh, we asked him a little bit about Tark. What do you, what was Tark's downfall? Well, I, you know I just think uh, Tark just didn't have a lot of experience coaching on the NBA level, and basically you know his frame of reference was. You know, if a guy was making a certain amount of uh, in salary, he's the guy that should be playing independent of his skill set. So I think, you know, part of the issue was he had issues with maybe guys that were minimum players that were actually better than some of the guys that were making more money. And I, I think that was part of his decision in terms of rotations and uh, playing players and knowing how to manage the game on the NBA level and timeouts and all the different situations. I just think it was a learning curve there where, you know, maybe if he was given a little bit more time, uh, he would have, you know, adjusted. Um, but I just think when, when I arrived there, he didn't know much about me. Um, I think there was another guy, I think it was Gary Grant who played at Michigan that was playing for the Clippers that he wanted. And, um, and it didn't work out. So, um, you know, feel bad for him. You know, I know he's passed on. Legendary coach at UNLV did, a, you know, had an unbelievable run there. But, uh, you know, just his NBA career was just cut short uh, and just didn't have a, time, a chance to really get his feet silently planted uh, as an NBA coach. You know, Noah just mentioned uh, that we had Sean Elliott on the podcast. And, of course, we asked him, about you and uh coach i want you to listen to this and hear what what he had to say still to this day he's the most intense basketball player i've ever uh, been on a team with and he he's so intense that uh you know like when i see him coaching i, I think it takes um people that are mentally tough uh to play for avery johnson if you're mentally weak or you're mentally soft uh you can't be around avery so, Coach, what do you think about uh, about what, what your old teammate has to say about you? Well, I have a lot of respect for Sean. Love him. Uh, he's a really good friend, and uh, we've been through a lot together. Um, and, you know, that's the type of player I was. And, 
I, I didn't have all of the the athletic gifts as the, the other guys on the team. I wasn't, I couldn't jump and touch the rim, and uh, you know I was had marginal speed, but my strength was leadership and toughness and being a coach on the floor and. So I wasn't a three-point shooter, so I had to make up for it in a lot of different ways. And I think that's where the nickname, the Little General, came from. But, you know, and it rubbed guys the wrong way sometimes. But ultimately, we have such a great amount of respect for each other. Uh, and as we've gotten older, we, we really appreciate all of the things that we went through. And guys had different personalities, and my personality was just one that I was just not going to back down from anybody or any situation. And, uh, you know, and, and moving forward as a coach, you know, you learn that, yes, you can operate with that type of intensity sometimes. You can't do it all the time because players are tuning you out. But that, that, that was, I think that was an accurate description of me um, as a player. You like that nickname, Little General? I did at that time. Um, I don't like it as much now because I'm 54, <laughs> but uh, but at that time, I think mm -hmm. it was an appropriate nickname to go with the Admiral. The, the Admiral needed a little general, and, and I was in the right place at the right time to team up um, with a team that, that was arguably, you know, one of the best defensive teams in NBA history. So so how do you, how do you react when Spurs fans will inevitably call you that? Oh, I love it. I was I was on an airplane flying from uh, New York back to my home in Dallas, and the plane was connecting through Dallas and dropping us off, and and uh, you know headed to San Antonio. And I would say they probably had about twenty Spurs fans on the plane, and they were calling me the little general and shouting "Go Spurs, go!" and and, uh, and it makes you feel good because they still remember your contributions, not only on the court, but, uh, you know, in the community. And, and then there was a whole other side uh, of the airplane that had more Mavericks fans. <laughs> and they remember me when I played, you know, for a season with the Mavericks, but mainly coached them to their first NBA finals. And, and they were shouting Mavs and, uh, you know, Coach Avery. So they know me more as Coach Avery. And the Spurs fans know me more as a little general. <laughs> all right, so speaking of coaches, Greg Popovich, we all hear about the legendary dinners, how great they are. I, I want I want to hear from you about a dinner that you left and, and thought to yourself, that, that just that just wasn't that good of a meal. Wow, never. <laughs> really? Never? You never, never. You, ne you never once thought Pop just you know what he missed he missed on that one. Oh, never. Every <laughs> one of our meals, he's batting a thousand. That's, and I, I, that's, that's thousand. impossible. No, it is. It's not impossible. We always have phenomenal meals. I will, I will tell you one of my memorable ones is when I was playing for Golden State at the end of my career. I'm in my 16th year. And uh, Eric Musselman, who's now the head coach at the University of Arkansas, was my coach. And I didn't play that much. It was the end of my career. Basically, my salary was thrown in just to make this trade work uh, with, with the Mavericks. But um, I don't know. It's somewhere in the middle of the season, and we're playing the Spurs. And, you know, we're down by 15 points or whatever. And Musselman puts me in the game. And I think I, I run off about five in a row left-handed runners off of a middle pick and roll. And, 
And I'll never forget after the game, Popovich summons a, a ball boy to the Golden State Warriors locker room, and he hands me a note that he tells me to meet him at a restaurant in San Diego. And, and I met him at the restaurant in San Diego, and, boy, we didn't leave out this restaurant until about 2.30 in the morning. And we had <laughs> such a memorable time going back down memorable lane of all of the games we were in with the Spurs. And and uh, it, it, it just was a nice way to end my career, having mm-hmm. dinner with my mentor, uh, in San Francisco when I was playing for another team. <laughs> was, there, was there something, players talk about the, the food that Pop makes them try that they'd never had before. Was there something that Pop made you try early in your career and, and you thought, oh, that's, that's terrible? Wow. Well, you know, early in my career, I was young, so I didn't really know about avocados. And, um, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't crazy about Chinese food when we went to, Chinese restaurants, but I tried it, and I, you know, you, you get accustomed to it, and 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 that's that's what I love about all of those experiences, trying things, and that that's what I, that's the way I taught my kids, and when we go to restaurants and you see other kids say, well, I don't eat tomatoes, or I don't eat avocados, or uh, or whatever, and my kids just would eat all of their vegetables, and they say, hey, how do you do that? And I say, well, it's just exposing them, and and uh, even with travel. A lot of the travels over the years when my kids were in middle school and elementary school and high school was all because of, you know, a lot of the ex- things that P- Coach Pop exposed us to when we were players and, and encouraged us to expose your kids, open up the doors, pull the curtain back, allow them to try some things. So that's, that's a lot mm-hmm. of what I learned was from my experiences with the Spurs. When, when you're coaching – what types of popisms uh, come out of your mouth? Wow, I, I would say uh, the number one thing is you know just move the ball, don't hold it. You know, pop they have they have this thing in their system called point five, where you got point five seconds to dribble it, pass it, or shoot it. Just don't hold it. And uh, we talk a lot about that with, with my teams of you know point point five, just move the ball. Or, you know, discipline on defense, get in the stands, get in the right position, but make sure you're in the stands. Um, you know, make the extra pass. Um, you know, sacrifice your body for the team. So those are some of the things that, that are consistent with Spurs philosophy. And we're seeing it throughout the league with all, all the members of his coaching tree. Um, Avery, I also want to ask you, you as a coach, most recently, as Noah mentioned, coach at Alabama, with everything going on in today's college basketball landscape, um, what what was the most difficult part of coaching in the college game today? Well, I would say the most difficult part uh, in the college game is obviously managing sometimes the unrealistic expectations of uh, parents with kids, you know, because you – you know, you just you can't have uh, all 300 Division One teams and every kid on every team is a pro. So I just think trying to manage those expectations, making sure the kids that are that have NBA talent have a chance to go and utilize their talents on the NBA level, but the others graduate from college and, and go on and, and, and have a productive career uh, in, in a career that's not – involved with professional basketball 
Um, so I, I, I think that's 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 a big thing that you have to do is just manage the expectations of the parents and the kids and, uh, on on the collegiate level. Is it exhausting? I wouldn't say it's exhausting. I, you know, I had a good four year run at Alabama, and um, I love people. I love you know problem solving. So I wouldn't say that is exhausting, but it's something that you you have to continue to make sure you have that communication and. And if you don't, you know, then the trust is going to be broken and, and um, it, the kid won't maximize himself, the team won't maximize itself. So I just think that constant communication needs to be there at all times. All right, so let's stay with coaching. How did the interview go with the Sixers? You know, when, you, you know people really said it was interview. It was just so exploratory. Uh, we just met and talked about kind of what their needs are. You know, I went in there and just to look at it and see what where I was. But um, at the end of the day, um, you know, Emil Doka was a, was a really good fit for them. Um, my whole plan was to sit out this year and uh, do some work again. You know, in the media with TV, uh, whether it was you know going to CBS Sports um, um, or you know some other network. But um, it was a great exploratory meeting, had a lot of fun, had dinner with those guys. But at the end of the day, um, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting back in the media. What do you think the NBA media needs that you can bring? What hole can you fill? Well, I, I think because I played in the NBA, uh, coached in the NBA, uh, I've been in the media before, I have a a much better understanding of younger players entering the NBA because I've been watching them on the AAU circuit for years yeah, and having coached in college for four years, I can bring a whole different dynamic about, you know, the, the, the anxiety of these kids and uh, the pressure that these kids have on them and uh, speak to not only their physical talents, but the, the mental state of, of, and the pressures that these kids feel uh, as they're entering the NBA and, and projecting them forward. And, and uh, so I, I have a great, you know, understanding of a lot of the kids that are in the NBA now because I've been watching them for the last four or five years. So give me a, an underrated prospect going into the draft. Well, I wouldn't give you an underrated prospect, but I will say this. Um, Zion Williamson is an incredible talent, incredible talent. Like, you know, I've been watching him since he was in eighth grade. Incredible talent. Okay. But if I had the number one pick in the draft, um, I would seriously entertain taking John Moran. You know, I had a chance to watch this kid with a front row seat when we played them this year and Murray State came and played us at Alabama and he scored, I think that was his coming out party. This kid is a serious talent. Pass dribbling, very athletic, high basketball IQ, huge upside. Uh, this this kid to me is a per, perennial all-star. He's a first-team all-NBA type of a player. Um, this kid has a little bit of all the great players that are at his position, the Chris Pauls, the Westbrook, uh, all those combined skills. So I, I would say I would 
seriously entertain him for the for the number one pick. All right, make sure that David Griffin, Trajan Lang didn't hear this. <laughs> um, we've got uh, two more for you, but the first one comes from Will Purdue, who I was uh, texting with yesterday, and he, and he finally got back to me, and he said, "Ask Avery." about his motivational stories prior to our team prayer, right before we yep. went on the floor, specifically the chicken and the pig. <laughs> well, well, we had a tradition uh, to pray before every game. Uh, David Robinson would lead the prayers. I would lead the prayers. And then sometime I would have uh, um, a story or some sort of motivational speech and I don't know exactly the specifics uh, with the chicken and the pig. It was probably something that I read back then um, that I utilized that story. But, it, you know, what I tried to do was it wasn't so much about religion, it, but it, we used our biblical stories to inspire and motivate our team. And whether the guys went to church or not, they really, it galvanized our team. And we even had joked around with the team sometimes and said, Hey guys, you know, we we don't we're not imposing any religion or anything on anybody. We're not gonna do those. We're not gonna pray before the games and I'm not gonna give any more motivational speeches and it was an uproar. Whether it was guys like Dennis Rodman or anybody, it was an uproar. Guys really got behind it. Um it was a big part of our team and uh it really galvanized us and and, and there were times I got pretty emotional. David got pretty emotional. Sometimes, I mean, we cried before games, right before we ran out on the court. And sometimes I had fire in my eyes with a story that maybe I, I, I shared with the team. But uh, they really got behind it. And um, uh, it, it was something that was very memorable about our 99 team. That's pretty special when you – and you got teammates to cry before a game. Um, hopefully you had success in those games. Hopefully we, you had did. Some success we did. We did. We did. Uh last question for you. Uh, you look, you mentioned it before, NCAA record, thirteen point three assists in a season. Um, and also, of course, you know, over fifty eight hundred assists as as an NBA point guard. So this is the catch and shoot podcast. We always like to ask guests, catch and shoot situation. Game seven, life on the line. Uh, which all-time teammate of yours are you looking to kick to for a catch-and-shoot game winner? Well, I would say Sean Elliott. You know, Sean Elliott had the Memorial Day miracle, which propelled us to beat Portland uh, when we were down and his, you know, seat were almost out of bounds. I mean, he told her right there and uh, he made a huge shot over Rasheed Wallace. So I'm going with my man, Sean Elliott. But if I had to win a game and it's not a three-point shot, there's no question the ball's going to Tim Duncan. The ball's, the ball's going to Tim Duncan, and he's going to deliver uh, 10 out of 10 times. Yeah, he certainly would. Avery, we appreciate okay. it, and looking forward to being part of the media with you this season. Thanks a lot, guys. Appreciate you guys having me on the Catch and Shoot podcast. Thank you. That was dope. Thanks again, Avery Johnson. We appreciate Avery continuing our coverage of the 20th anniversary of the San Antonio Spurs lockout title. Sean Elliott last week, Avery Johnson this week. Next week, uh, 
I think Antonio. I think Antonio Daniels played six minutes on that team. Maybe maybe we'll get maybe we'll get AD. So it's also the Stanley Cup, and I think Doc Emmerich on NBC is. I think he's the best play-by-play guy in any sport, Doc. And Chad Finn from the Boston Globe had written a piece this, uh, I think it was maybe two weeks ago, about that he spent time with Doc as he prepared for the Cup. And I wanted to relay a few stories because in college, it was Doc who showed me in five minutes what I wanted to be like as a professional. So during the lockout, when I was in school, I think this was oh three, oh four, no oh four. I was a production assistant slash runner when, which is if you're not in the business, it's kind of like an intern. When CBS Sports Network would come to Boston University to do hockey games, and Doc was calling the games, which was wild. And so Doc was calling the games, and just one day I was. The morning of, a, of the game, we're in Walter Brown Arena, and I'm near the entrance, and I'm setting up a tripod. And I'd met Doc the night before for briefly, and he came up, and uh, I can't do an impression of Doc, but he said, uh, hey, Noah, do you need a hand? In my head, I'm like, Doc Emmerich's asking me if I need a hand to set up a tripod? <laughs> and I said, uh, I said, no, Doc, but thank you. He said, well, what are you, what are you setting up for? And I told him, should he says, oh, that's great. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing it. It was some, you know, I don't even, I don't even remember what the shoot was. And then Doc had come to our sports journalism class. He was close with Jack Falla, who was the longtime lead SI writer for the NHL, wrote more stories on Gretzky than anybody else, would have Thanksgiving dinners with Gretzky. And Jack was, and Jack tragically passed away at a heart attack a number of years ago. But Jack taught sports journalism 8 a.m. on Fridays to weed out who wanted it and who didn't. And Doc came in one day, and Jack had told me, this was when I was a, I think I was a junior at that time, or maybe I was a senior at that time, I I honestly don't remember, and Jack said, if you bring in your tape, because I was calling hockey games, it's okay to give it to Doc. So I gave it to Doc, and Doc said, "Uh, I can't promise I get back to you right away, but I I will get back to you. This was during the NHL season. Wow. So a few months later, I get an email from Doc, and not only did he listen to it, he time-coded on a, on a cassette tape, hey, at this point, when you said this, that was great because of this. Or when you said this, I would have said this. Or this is where you're ahead of the curve. Or um, try using this way of calling a line chain. It was, That's it, remarkable. He went, he went through it. And about two months later, my mom calls me and says, uh, you got a you got a letter at home, and I'd emailed with Doc back and forth a little bit, and I and I got a my mom said you got a letter at home, and it's on the outside. It, the return address says Doc Emmerich. I said, huh? So I said, yeah, open it up. What's it say? And inside was a printout of an email that Doc had sent me, and he had an AOL address at the time <laughs> that he had sent me with a post-it note on it that said, Noah, I didn't know if this email went through. So wow. he didn't know he didn't know that the email went through, okay, and which it did, and I had responded, but you know who knows. He then got my home address for my professor and printed the email with that post-it note and mailed it to my house. Doc Emmerich. That, that Doc is Emmerich. stunning. Yeah, that Doc is Emmerich. stunning. So, so what I learned from Doc 
one about like, being a professional. I, I, I study when I call games, I study the crew list of, and especially like the, the A2, which is your, one of your audio guys who's there mm-hmm. um, at the table. And of course, producer, director, but cameraman, everybody that I, I, I study that crew list. Like I'm studying the rosters so that you address people the way they should be addressed. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And so, and I, and I, and I learned, uh, and I don't know if Doc did that, but the fact that Doc just called me by my name made me think that maybe he did that too. It, and by the way, for people that that don't know the significance of that and understanding a crew list, I can't tell you how many shows that I've worked on in which the on-air talent has said, uh, producer, uh, yeah, director, uh, right. PA, PA, prompter, prompter, can you uh, scroll up prompter? Thanks. I mean, the, these are these are people. Yeah. These are... These are uh, humans. We can we can treat them as such. That's an incredible story, Noah. And I just the, my only question on this is how much of your broadcasting style and and how you call games is attributable to what he taught you then. It, I mean, I haven't done hockey on on his level. Um, sure, but it but it you do try to paint the picture with different types of words, and and that is certainly attributable attributable to doc okay so uh let's close out with i'll skip what i think is entertaining me aside from sports let's uh go with you and we'll close it out well i said it off the top of the show chernobyl is a must watch for people just remarkable to see the relationship between um what's gone on you know with that that great tragedy and and what happened with the government involvement and all and, and just the storytelling throughout that series was incredible so i highly recommend people watch chernobyl Awesome, awesome stuff on HBO. All right, and we got to do the thank yous. Uh, we have eight producers this week, but we'll just thank Bruce Bernstein and Scott Turkin. Make and sure everyone you... from Pure Hoops Media, right? Well, of course, the whole Pure Hoops Media team. Make sure you listen and subscribe and download the Mike Y Show, Buckets, Boards, and Blocks, and Monica McKnight, and the Pure Hoops Show with Eric Newman and BJ Armstrong. And when you subscribe, takes five seconds on apple Podcasts to just click five stars and write a quick review adnan verk did it this is so, true so if if one of the all-time canadians can do it any one of you average americans can do it while you listen adam good talking to you about you're the best the catch and shoot podcast is a presentation of pure hoops media Have you ever wondered how to say good morning in Italian? Or what is goodbye in French? You can ask Alexa. Just say, what is happy birthday in German? Or how do you say hello in Japanese? Do you want to know how to say I love you in Spanish? Ask Alexa and start learning a new language today.